Hi guys, and welcome to this episode of the Comedy Defects Podcast. I'm going to keep this intro extremely short. My wife has been messing around with acrylic resin and my mind is just all over the place. It's like I've been sniffing glue for the last three hours as she's been sitting in the kitchen making her handicraft stuff. So I'm going to keep this really short, okay? Uh, this podcast has recently been put up on Stitcher on Spotify, it's on YouTube. Go and leave us a nice review and subscribe there. Uh, there are gonna be some live stand-up shows that are gonna be streamed live to YouTube all over the place. And they're gonna be called Still Laughing Inside. And I'm gonna be doing something called Ranty Reviews, which I take something, I review it. It could be a film, it could be a book, it could be something that just has really annoyed me. Hey, Ranty Reviews, that's what it's gonna be called. And I'm gonna be doing still some live Comedy Defect podcasts as well. They're gonna be broadcast straight out and so it'll be a bit of fun to do those as well. Just get to grips with the technology on that kind of stuff. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Winter Dominus. That's W-I-N-T-E-R-D-O-M-I-N-U-S. Winter Dominus at Winter Dominus. That's me there. Now, this is episode 73 with an excellent comedian. He is such a I just he's so good at just being concise and getting the detail just right in the punchline, the setup, creating amazing word images that the audience can just absorb without tripping over or doing any mental gymnastics to try and find out what the actual meaning or the the through line of the joke is. It's just I don't want to go into it too much because at the moment my brain isn't functioning correctly, and I say this is the well. 10th or 15th time I've tried to record this intro because of all the uh, all the, the uh, intoxicants from that acrylic resin that is in me right now. I don't know, I don't think there's an antidote to that, but I think I just need to have a lie down. So this is episode 73 with an excellent comedian. He's had loads of TV. Go check his stuff out online. Go and see him live when, when the lockdown finishes. As I say, they don't want to make this, this intro too long. So I'm going to say is, look, this is an excellent episode. Adam was kind enough to give me an hour and a half of his time. He's an excellent comedian. Um, uh, just a brilliant joke writer and a really good friend of mine. And we spent an hour and a half talking about comedy. It really was a lot of fun. And I asked him some questions that he'd never been asked before in all the 20 odd years of him doing comedy. Uh, so that was, that was great. I enjoyed that. So this is episode 73 with an excellent comedian, Adam Bloom. Enjoy. Adam Bloom, welcome to The Comedy Defect. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you. And what have you been up to? I've been gigging a lot, been writing for other people a lot, and yeah. that's my life. Yeah. I go to the gym four times a week, I run twice a week, yeah. I see my children, and I gig. Right. And that's my Which life. Which is your favourite part of that? I see my children. <laughs> Which is good. Yeah, but gigging's a close second because I'm addicted to my work. Mm. 25 years and I'm still addicted to it. Wow. Yeah. And when did you start then? 25 years ago. <laughs> what, what, what date? What was the date of your first gig? You it was been... the 13th of December, 1993. Right. And my wedding anniversary was also the 13th of December. I didn't choose that. I had a choice of two dates, and one was my best man's birthday, so I couldn't do that. Right. So it had to fall on the same date. Found my first home on the 13th, bought it on the 13th, three months later to the day. Uh, saw my, was supposed to see my 12-week scan of my first daughter on the day. The hospital made a mistake. So we saw a 13-week scan on the 13th. So the 13th was so many significant days mm. in my life, you know, uh, split up with my wife on the 13th. Mm. But nonetheless, so, so many significant dates in my life have been the 13th. You, don't, you wouldn't think that it's good luck or bad luck, it's just the way things go with you. Well, it, only one of those things was a negative. Right. They were all amazing things. Career starting, 
owning a home. Yeah. You know, seeing your daughter's uh, scan. Yeah. It, and the only negative was split up with, with my wife. You know, that's still a new chapter of starting, I suppose. You can look at everything as positive if you want to. But th- th- you can't argue that starting a career is a positive, not a positive oh, yeah. thing. And you, I saw your awards up there in 1998? Two awards in 1998. So that's like you started in 93? Well, yes, 94, I suppose. My... Yeah, December '93. So let's see, beginning '94. So that's only five years since you started, and four and a half years. Yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, that's not bad, is it? But then right. I probably peaked a bit early. Someone, some would say. First award was. First award was the Polygram uh, Punters Video Award in Edinburgh, which became the Universal Award. Jerry Sadowitz won it the year before me, and Al Murray won it the year after me, uh, and the other one's Time Out Award for Best Stand Up, and Phil Nickel won Best Performer the same year. Hmm. They give two awards out. They make up one. There's always Best Stand Up, but then they make up another one. Uh, that suits their agenda, I suppose. Because Phil's such an incredible performer, they went, let's give him one. How did you start into performance? I was a cocktail bartender, and I'd always wanted to be a comedian since I was nine years old. I got sacked from a job for mucking about. David Ward, comedian David Ward, was the other bartender there. We worked Mm. together as bartenders. And I went to the Bearcat Club and saw Harry Hill, and he blew my mind. And I didn't realise until that day that there was something called an open spot Mm. where anyone could get up and do five minutes. So when I found that out, I asked them, I think I went a couple of weeks running to watch the gig, and then I asked them, could I do one? And they said, yeah, come back in you know three weeks' time. And uh, in that three weeks, I scribbled down all my ideas. And uh, no, I recorded them to a dictaphone, actually. I had material in my first gig that was four years old because I thought of it when I was 19, just as a funny story. Mm. And so my first set was had some ideas that were four years old. Mm. Mm. And then it was a kind of a very... A significant moment in my life because I realised on stage what I was supposed to be doing yeah. and my whole life until then had been a bit of chaos yeah. and suddenly it was like it all made sense great yeah 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 and, and so the cocktail uh, bar thing was that was that you you liked working there because I mean that's the age of uh, Tom Cruise time as well wasn't it that the cocktail was yeah you, everyone was throwing it around your like back and I stuff like no, I went to one I worked in one place in in Piccadilly, where you could do a bit of throwing it around because it was a busy, mm. uh, exciting young people bar. But the one in Westminster was a very formal place. It was full of MPs. There's a, a bell where the MPs had to vote. Mm. The, em- the restaurant was empty. The, the bell would ring in the restaurant and the MPs would disappear and don't vote. So that was not a throwing around place. Mm-hmm. That was a very serious place. And that's why I got sacked because I come from the West End. Really. Right. But, you know, getting sacked from a job, again, negatives turned to positives. Yeah. I was devastated when I lost my job, but, you know... A month later, I was doing stand-up. Wow. So that was a great thing. Thank you for sacking me, Martin Pickles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Before this, before doing comedy, you were a close-up magician? Yeah, I only did a little bit of work doing it. I never made a living. But yeah, I used my bit of magic on my first few gigs to you know, use what I had, I suppose. But then magic went to just a hobby, which I still do. I love, I love it. I'd spend a lot of time fiddling around a pack of cards, inventing tricks. Should really be writing jokes, but it's nice to have a hobby, isn't it? What was the uh, first trick you had? On stage? Like, yeah, well, first trick, yeah, the first magician trick that you did. You In my stand-up? Yeah, or, or, or both. Did you, did oh, you mix the two together? Did you? Yeah, mix... yeah, that's what I'm oh, saying. Oh, right. I mean, God, first magic trick, I can't, go, I can't go back. You know, I was doing it when I was eight years old. Wow. The first trick I did on stage, though, I went on stage with a, a long wig on, I had a goatee beard, a black suit, and a hat on, black hat on, and I looked like a street performing magician. And I did a thing where I got a woman to pick a card, and you forced the seven of hearts on her, and then you, 
I took my coat off and I hung it on a um, clothes hanger and I have one of those rubber hands that looks like you're holding the coat. Do you know Steve Best does it? So you look, yeah, you're holding yes. both, yeah. but you've got a free hand behind it. Mm. And I go behind the thing mm. and the scissors would float around. That's how I had some scissors floating around magically because I was holding them in the other hand. Mm. And I go, right, they're going to cut my hair. I go behind the thing, pull my wig off and came up with a skinhead. Mm. Big, big, big laugh, the mm. shock. Mm. And then I go, what was your card? And she goes, the seven of hearts. I go, look, the scissors have cut my hair. Look what they've done. I turned around and I had the seven of hearts cut into my hair in hair. She goes, wow. seven of hearts in hair. Yeah. It was a big impact. It, was, it doesn't sound like much now, but trust me, it was a Fish big, egg. big impact. Yeah. So I did that for the first six months. I had to go around with the seven of hearts shaved into my head with a hat and covering all day long, covering wow. a hat. And then I did that up to, I did say thing funny in Edinburgh. I got in the final doing that, 94. I dropped, then I dropped the magic and decided I just want to do straight stand-up. But I was doing magic for the first seven months or so. But that thing, I haven't described that for years, that playing card thing on the head. But visually as a comedy magic, you know, mm. having your hair disappear behind the mm. coat with the two hands apparently holding it up, mm. visually was very strong. Mm. Have you seen Steve Best do it? Yes, I have, yeah. It's great. Six hats and different changes and mm. beards and glasses. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. Just up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Yeah, and so you're, uh, and so you you started on the thirteenth of December, December ninety three, right? And what was your uh, joint opening gag? My opening line was, "I can't see a fucking thing," because the lights were so bright. That was my opening line, very professional. And my opening gag was, I said to a woman in the audience, "I'm going to read your mind," and yeah. do a bit of mind reading. I touched my finger on her temple, and I said, "What's this idiot touching my head for?" Yeah. That was my first ever joke. Yeah. No one's ever asked me my first ever joke on stage. It's such a good question, and yet no one's asked it. When I said, what's this idiot touched my head for? She laughed nervously, because it was her head being touched. Yeah. And the other 199 people in the room, whatever it was, 180 people, didn't laugh at all. Oh. So my first joke got nothing. But I carried on, yeah. and uh, and I got them. First gig went really well. It didn't take long to have a bad gig, though. But oh. my first gig went really well. Yeah, and my sixth gig was horrendous but you know at least I had the first five to give me the self yeah that's good that's good going. yeah I mean yeah. the second one for me was awful the first one was great the second one crushingly bad it's awful because you, mm. you you think but that worked last night it should work again mm. it doesn't work like that does it, 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 it I mean it's the old uh, the, the, the root of three thing I find that you know you nail it the first time because you're like really excited about it and the second time you're like you, you think you've got it but you don't really have it and then the third time I'm like well this is fucking good I'm going to redo this properly this time okay. <laughs> yeah. but mine was worse because five in a row good makes you think I've got this nail of course yeah and then the sixth one was so bad I mean just getting absolute silence to joke after joke to a packed room oh. who's gradually start hating you and you're just going, why? What's going on? Mm. And this, the whole world sort of slows down and it goes inside you. Their hatred goes into your body and you can feel this just this horrible mm. darkness. That was pretty harsh. All-consuming, isn't it? Is I, it? Yeah, I always wonder, if your first gig was awful, would you, do an, would you have done a second gig? Or would you just thought, what was I thinking? Okay. Well, I, I, I definitely went straight back on the horse after the sixth one, mm-hmm. but that's because I had five good ones on my back. If I'd had a bad one straight away, I wonder if I'd have thought, what was I thinking? Or maybe I've been persistent. I'll mm. never know. Mm, it's but true. It just worries me that people do give up early and never find their potential because a lot of people take a while to blossom, don't they? Mm. So, yeah, it's very sad I hear about people who gave up. There's some really good people who gave up when I started because they just couldn't cope with the ups and downs of it all. Mm. You know, you've got, to, you've got to develop a thick skin. And I'm not a thick skin person, mm. but I developed a thick skin doing stand-up. Yeah. Because you have to. Yeah. It's just a theory of mine, I think. I think that most people that do stand up are incredibly sensitive because they're and they they feel fear in many things, so they need to face that thing that terrifies them the most. 
to face that thing that terrifies them the most in order to, to you know to give themselves some self-esteem right, right, right. that's what I've, 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 I thought maybe that's just for me but I think that like when you get up there because they, they say that public speaking is the number two number one oh, is it number one death is number, number two yeah, yeah. Oh, right. are you an actor first though no that was a quick answer it's <laughs> <laughs> like a police interview no. did you do it no <laughs> Who did you model yourself on when you first started? Ben Elton. I overdosed on Ben Elton and Rick Mail, the young ones, Phil Twitch and Cap Black, Ben Elton stand up. To me, that was the best it could be. So when I started, a lot of my stuff was his rhythm and his rants. I remember getting doing a, something, an observation about sex. And I said, I said, man, have you ever wondered what your girlfriend thinks about when she's having sex with you? And it was a, like a weird sort of noise of, a, not laughter, but like kind of a, uh, the, the reaction I wanted, the kind of, oh, you just touched on the, the nerve there. And I went, always goes quiet, doesn't it? And I thought, it's my first gig. Looking back on it, how can I say it always goes quiet? It's my first gig. Mm-hmm. And I was in, I was introduced as this is first time on stage because I asked them to say that. Someone said it's a bad idea, but I think I got an extra bit of credit for my, my achievement. But the when I went, I went, always goes quiet, doesn't it? It's like, it's like you've just said it's your first time on the stage. You can't... It, you know, Ben Elton would refer to the, that material the time he's done it before. I'm not a fan of that. I think mm-hmm. it's a, a really bad thing to do. Mm-hmm. I did this last night in France and someone said this. Don't remind me of it you've done it before. Mm-hmm. They know deep down it's an act, but make it feel like it's a personal relationship mm-hmm. when it's happening. But Ben Elton always used to do that. Oh, I did this last night. Oh, it always goes quiet that bit, doesn't it? Always goes quiet that bit. Referring to a routine. He's got no problem with being a routine and acknowledging it's been written. It's just so sweet that I was impersonating Ben Elton by saying, always goes quiet on this bit, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's your first gig! <laughs> <laughs> it's never, it's never been reacted to before. I think I've laboured that point, but you got yeah, the gist. Yeah. So you model yourself on Ben Elton, hundred percent. Yeah, and was there anyone else? Alexis Sale probably influenced me, and Emo Phillips made me obsessed with structure of jokes and detail. But I wasn't copying him. Emo, I've got a portrait of Emo Phillips in my hallway. I don't really noticed it. He was my inspiration when I was nineteen. So Emo got me writing jokes. Harry Hill got me doing comedy, and I've had the privilege of supporting both of them, which was yeah. amazing. Especially Emo, because he was over from the States. I didn't think I'd even ever meet him. People said to me, who are your biggest influences? When I see Emo Phillips, people think, you're nothing like Emo. But the influence can be very subtle, can't it? It can, mm. be, it can be in the in the structure of a joke that no one's going to notice, because Emo's a character, almost. He's mm. not. He's certainly not that weird in real life. He's weird. Mm. But, you know, I'm obviously I'm not doing character comedy. But what I think is important about influence is that you shake them off as soon as you realise they're there. Mm. Because there are a few Eddie Izzards on the circuit and there are a few Sean Locks on the circuit. There's a few lot of Stuart Lees on the circuit. Mm-hmm. And it's like you emulate your hero and then you have to shed your skin. Mm-hmm. And ironically, you shed your skin enough times that you end up back as yourself. Yeah, that's true. Isn't that weird? It's very true. It's in, in the danger is at the very beginning, isn't it, when you, you just want to make it happen so quickly. And then you like you just become a, a homunculus of all this weird. What does homunculus mean? Oh, just so uh, now you're asking me. Ah, <laughs> just a, a amalgamation. Winter does not know what it means. <laughs> it's just a massive amalgamation. It's a huge thing, isn't it? Of just like a mixture of of, uh, of like. I like the way you said, "Isn't it?" To someone who doesn't know what it I'm means. I'm talking to myself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know what I'm listening. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, get, I'll give you a question in a second. Uh. Uh, but as I'm saying, Winter, uh, so <laughs> it's an amalgamation of many different parts of a, a huge thing of just a, a concoction of different different things. Okay. And then uh, I knew the meaning. I did know the meaning. It was in there somewhere. The very first gig, sort of thing. You're most pure, and then you spend the next few years trying to get back to who you were because you've seen all these other ways to do it and go, oh, I, I could do that. I could do that. Oh, I was other way around because my first gig wasn't pure because oh. I watched so much Ben Elton right. that I was just doing him. Right. 
And then I gradually realised as I started writing more jokes that I had a unique mm. perspective, mm-hmm. and which is what every comedian should have, mm. and uh, start to let my own personality come out because I was, I was as I got less nervous, I was more able to be myself rather than putting a mask on. So to me, it wasn't mm. that way round. But either way, influence comes in at some point, doesn't it? Yeah. I watched Dara O'Brien on um, Live at the Apollo, and he he's a lovely guy. If you listen to this, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but he had a bit of an Izzard, a little bit of an Izzardism in him. And I thought, hang on a minute, you've reached the stage where you're a household name and you've still got a little bit of Izzard in you. That's not good. Mm. And then someone told me when I brought that up that they read an interview with him and he said he was so influenced by Izzard, he had to beat the Izzard out of himself. Wow. But I still spotted a little quirk, mm. and that's interesting because yeah. at least he acknowledged it. True, true. And he worked on it, mm. but he still reached the stage of being on primetime television yeah. with a little bit of a Ooh, mm-hmm. and just. I, I, and I saw it. I was like, "That's not you. Yeah, that's definitely not you." Yeah. But in all fairness, I must have seen him live twenty times before I spotted that quirk. So it's yeah. not a big deal. Just a little drop, a little mm. fingerprint, maybe. Yeah. Little bit of an echo of the of the yeah. things they've been watching. That's interesting, is it? It's, it's dangerous, isn't it? We're so susceptible to to influence. When you're inspired by something, it's just like so hard to not pick up that that thing. But like we're talking about Emo Phillips as well. He um, he's very thoughtful and and pondering, isn't he? He's yeah. he, he's, he's not like bang bang no, bang. He's just no. like he creates the imagery amazing. and the amazing, amazing. mental imagery. But that's Incredible. what you're. That's but that's what you're really good at as well, Adam, isn't it? You your mental imagery and and, and so they say word word so, um, yes word poems. I, it's weird because I don't see the mental imagery when I'm doing the joke. I'm more interested in the timing and the the wording. So I'm while I'm on stage, I'm being meticulous with the wording and my timing. But people say to me that I have quite strong mental imagery, but I don't. Um, somehow I'm not as. I'm not as bothered about that as I am about the actual the misdirection and the and the surprise. Mm. But of course, yeah, when you're watching a comedian, you're you're, you're picturing stuff. I think about the other day someone did a joke, and I, I was thinking about this in the car today that someone told a joke, and as they said it, I had such a strong. It was Arnold Brown, my mentor. I actually had a, had a dream about him last night. That's how insignific- how significant he's in my life. Mm. But he had a joke, very laconic, Glaswegian, old guy, right? And he goes, "The SAS." I can't do accents. He goes, "The SAS. They're always angry, aren't they? They're always." jumping out of buildings and you never see them having a cup of tea and I think I've worked out why they're so angry it's because when you were a kid your mum used to make, make you wear a balaclava and it used to itch <laughs> and um, what, just the idea that yeah. <laughs> I had an image of the embassy siege the Iranian embassy siege where there was people held hostage there and the SES threw a Batman claw up a building climbed up the building and then threw a smoke bomb in went in and, and rescued the people mm-hmm. right it was amazing it was on live television and I was at my grandmother's in central London. We heard the bangs three seconds before they were on television. Wow. Yeah. It was the most incredible bit of television ever. News television. Mm. Live, a siege being stopped on live television. But when Arnold said they said they were angry, they were jumping out of buildings, I got this vivid image of that. Mm-hmm. So when he said about your mum making me a balaclava, the idea that he's throwing smoke bombs and jumping through buildings because he's itching. Yeah. It was just amazing for yeah. me. But the mental image was, he didn't creatively make that image. He just reminded me of something I'd seen. So that's not a good example of the writing being good, good mental imagery. It's just an example of my memory of an event being mm. But still, I flooded back to that image. Mm. And that made the joke far more powerful for me. Because mm. I could really see, like if you'd only heard of the SAS, that wouldn't be as funny a joke, would it? Mm-mm. Yeah. 
Sean Locke once was saying, uh, so that's it, he's doing a routine, so something happens, and then he immediately goes, and then the, I got mugged by a bloke on a bungee cord. He goes, uh, but it's for charity, so I couldn't do anything about it, right? Mm. It's a lovely thought that you can't do anything about it. But the image of him walking down the street at the end of a joke, so I've got him in my mind, and then this bloke appearing out of nowhere on a rubber band, going, it was so such a strong image. Mm. But you don't have to give yourself to that. You can just listen and go, okay, so someone bungee you. That's a, that's a nice idea, but you're only going to get the full impact if you actually imagine it yeah. so I suppose this is when people half-heartedly watch comedy and then they go I didn't have a good time it's like you've got to give yourself to that person because the image of a guy bouncing out the sky and grabbing your wallet and bouncing back and then going back up again disappearing yeah. it's beautiful isn't it yeah totally but it's not beautiful if you just listen to the words on their own that's why children are so good you read them a bedtime story I remember my eldest daughter when she was about three I said to her bedtime time I went to, to read her a bedtime story she went what should we read daddy like that yeah like wow mm. all these books what should we choose and go into that world mm. beautiful right yeah i suppose that's how you should approach watching a comedian yeah allow yourself to go into their head and see what they're showing you because they're stories aren't they stories for adults isn't that's what Carl yeah, yeah, is? yeah 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 because you know adult adult stories each joke's a little story itself you know i, I do have some stories but i'm more into routines mm. but they're still stories because you're describing the situation you're in you know Arguably, a one-liner is a story. It's true. Just a very condensed, yeah, little image. That's a yeah. It's true. They're all little vignettes of uh, of uh, uh, like a, like a like a spot the dog book, only even shorter, isn't it? You spot the dog like where's Wally? Yeah, that's exactly like where's Spot? He's under the the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. thing, isn't it? <laughs> there I just remember the Stephen Wright joke. He said, um, "I I I spot spot remove on my dog, and now he's gone missing." Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I spilled spot remover on my dog and now I can't find him. Yeah, it's great. I love Stephen Wright. What I love is that it's a given that your dog's called Spot. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. You've done like the festivals as well, the fringes too. You've done all those. I've done Edinburgh eight times. Eight times. And I haven't been since 2007. So I'd clock that up in all that, in that short time and then haven't gone for 12 years. Wow. It's bad, isn't it? Do you miss it? Yeah. But so why won't you go back? I mean, um, well, I mean like, oh, sorry. Okay. Why haven't so gone back in that time? In 12 um, years you haven't gone back. Well, 2008 I got married, 2009 my wife was pregnant, 2010 became a parent, 2011 moved house, 2012 had another daughter, 2014 had a breakup, uh, 2015 moved out and then I suppose my life's been up in the air a bit since then but I, you know I also do a lot of writing for other people so you know I do spend a lot of creative time sitting down working on other people's careers and I remember my wife used to, I, I did a writing job for someone on my own sitting up in my office I came down and said just come up some um, a real stuff I'm really proud of. I, I, loads of stuff I'm really proud of. And she went, I wish you put that energy into your own career. And I thought, God, you put a good point. But you know, if someone's paying you good money to do something, yeah, you're gonna do it, aren't you? Yeah, of course. What was the first show that you took to Edinburgh? Ninety six. I did a one man show. I'd only be going two and a half years, mm. just over two and a half years. I worked very hard on it. My first preview was fifty two minutes it felt like two hours and then by my third preview it was flying by and then by the time I was a few days into Edinburgh I didn't even look at my notes before I went on it was amazing the, the progress mm -hmm. the speed you know mm -hmm. people say don't, don't do Edinburgh till you you know you've had an hour for a couple of years but I don't agree because I look at it as like a pair of jeans in a sale that are too big but you buy them because they're cheap you shrink them you put a belt on you turn them up and somehow you make them fit mm. and that kind of pro process of you know 
nothing like a deadline, is there? So I had to, I mean, I remember that I didn't quite have an hour. I don't know, there was one bit in it that was out of character. My persona had evolved and this didn't fit for me. And I went, it's a good bit. It's a whole routine, but I'm not going to do it because it doesn't fit my persona. Mm. So I dropped it and I went, well, I need that five minutes because I'm scraping the barrel to get an hour mm. together. Mm. But I found it because I had to. Mm. What are you going to do? Stop the show early? Yeah. You've got to do it. Necessity, yeah. Necessity is the mother of invention. Mm. Great phrase, isn't it? Mm. Did you get people to review your show? I got a four star from the list, and which is obviously it's two weeks or a week, a week. Mm-hmm. So that was a magazine pre-internet that was out for a week, and I went from getting between twenty-five and forty people to a full house every night, seventy-two seats, because it was a small room, yeah. and you only need an extra forty people to set up, and forty people are going to read that a day, mm-hmm. and come along. So that was it. And um, I fly. I spent eight hours a day flying, maybe six hours a day including breaks with you know plus breaks hmm. leafleting all day long didn't drink wow. don't drink in Edinburgh hmm. just leafleting all day long to get people to come to my show because if one in 50 people come and you do that all day you've got an extra 10-20 people in and if there's a reviewer in they're going to see you in front of a good audience yeah. and then they're more likely to give you a good review because it's very hard to review a show in front of 10 people and right. see that you know I'm not going to shine in front of 10 people so when I finally sold out I stopped leafleting I felt I've earned it but I, I my commitment was it, it almost mentally ill mm-hmm. because I just lived and breathed it and went, I am here to do this. But you know, that work ethic is, you know, I don't have quite the same work ethic now, but that was a very, very driven 25 year old and it mm. it did wonders because I got them in, got the reviews. There were other comics who didn't do flying. They got drunk every night and they drag themselves out of bed at 11 o'clock and then go and do their show half, you know, on half energy levels. Mm to 12 people and then wonder why they got a bad review when they got reviewed you think well you know you've got to you've got to work at this yeah. stuff how many flyers did you take with you to Edinburgh oh my god they printed them out and they're in the office of the company that uh, produced my show there were boxes and boxes and boxes I, I six seven hours a day that's a lot of flyers isn't it for yeah. a full run in Edinburgh yeah wow well yeah for two weeks so it wasn't for the oh, four two weeks, weeks. Two it wasn't weeks. for four weeks right right still even so that's still a lot still a lot the thing is because I I messed up at school left school at 16 with two O-levels I did the last year of O-levels got two took ten to, got two what did you do? art and graphics right and then I um, ended up you know being a bartender being sacked and mm. I got sacked from quite a few jobs so I'd always known I was talented in the sense I was funny but I'm getting sacked from my jobs it's like I messed up at school I messed up at work mm. I was unemployed for longer than I was employed from 16 to 23 I did my first gig mm. I was unemployed for longer than I was employed so I really did bum about and people sort of went oh he's messed up already he's got no hope in life mm. but I once I found that thing yeah. that was it I wasn't going to let go of it Did, but, yeah that's it just all, all the, the knot tightened not tightened I was not letting go of that one yeah. wow that's great yeah thank god that was your first show what is what's been your favourite show you've written? Ninety eight was the one that got the award, and that was probably the most successful. It got the, the most, most good reviews. It got it got really loads and loads of good reviews. I feel like I'm boasting, but you're asking no, me it's, questions. It's your, it's your life. It's your life. It's uh, thank true. you, thank you. But two thousand one was was the show I think was my best show, and that had all lots of weird stuff going on in it as well. I played the flute in it, but mm. I made it funny because yeah. it was a high concept idea. Had costume change and voiceover that stuff with Alice McGowan doing. Alice McGowan's worked for free on three Edinburgh shows for me. He's so gifted. I gave him a sheet of A4 with stuff typed out on it and I recorded it with a mini displayer. And he said, I gave it a thing to rehearse it. He said, you may as well rec- record my rehearsal because you never know. And he got it right in first take without even... He was reading 
stuff he'd never heard before and still worked out where to put the emphasis on words. How do you do that? How do you do that? It's a practice, huh? that's it. But what, I mean, how does he know yeah. halfway through a sentence how the mm. sentence is going to end? Because you know you've got to put the infliction yeah. on the right places, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many times have you read a letter to somebody and gone, and we're going to your house and be there <laughs> until four p.m. You know, it's, yeah. it's just I I would need probably ten goes at that. Yeah. We did do more takes, and we didn't use the first take because there was maybe a little tiny bit that I found was funny or whatever. But that first take was good enough. And then he said to me, "If there's anything you need to redo, don't be scared to ask me." Yeah. And I did. It was a significant thing I needed to change, yeah. and I got him back. You did it a second time because you're like I'm, you did the first time I'm not having you do it right the first time ah, <laughs> it was, no you can do it a second time ah, you like it <laughs> you, you, yeah, I mean you know, if you've got someone in your house who's travelled that way to see you may as well do a few takes right. but he's so professional wouldn't charge me a penny oh. this is a guy that probably makes thousands an hour for his voiceover work right. wouldn't charge me a penny did it three, three editors he did it for me yeah and he did a radio for two episodes where he would have got paid very little mm. to do it so he's done a lot for me that's five performances for me Great. so what was in your first show Adam Bloom Adam Bloom and the second show Adam Bloom all of them Adam Bloom no third was Adam Bloom fourth was called Beyond a Joke fifth was called And God Created Adam yeah. sixth was called Entertaining the Thought right. and the seventh was called Look at Me Anybody so I was in a restaurant with my f- sister and, uh, and my mum and dad and my brother-in-law and our niece was about five and she put a mouthful of noodles in, in Wagamama there's dripping out that side of it, like a moustache. And she went, look at me, mum. And mum didn't hear her because she was busy. She went, look at me, dad. And he didn't hear her, and I could hear it. And then she went, look at me, anybody. <laughs> and I suddenly realised that that's what every performer's doing every night of their life. You don't care who comes. Yeah. You just want an audience. Yeah. Look at me, anybody. And I just look at me, anybody. I just want someone to see what I'm doing right now. And I suddenly thought, so the picture of the poster was me silly grin my eyes facing one way I've got quite big eyes right so cool. eyes facing extreme right and I was pointing with my two fingers either side of my face at myself okay. pointing at me look at me look at me anybody yeah it seemed it seemed like the kind of out the mouths of veins kind of thing yeah. but it, yeah it was, that was the name of the show but I was I was into the idea of your show just called your name because it's more space on the poster to put your name in big print because you're selling you as the product. Mm-hmm. Some people have really long show titles. That means that's less room for their name, mm. more to remember. So I think it's quite good to hear a show just called your name. Yeah, that's true. Look at me, anybody was your favourite show? No, 2001, which was called um, and God Created Adam. God Created Adam, right. And was, was there a religious theme to that? or Not in the slightest. Kevin Hayes, Irish comedian, mm. you know, he said, why don't you do an Adam show called God Created Adam and God Created Adam? And I thought, oh yeah. And there's no, there's no biblical quote, God Created Adam, but you know, yeah. you can hear it and it was a picture of me that they put a halo over my face right. over my head uh, looking up at the sky and it was a good image it was a good image it wasn't my idea I looked at the picture and I said to the producer I said I like the picture but I don't like the halo and he went that's the genius of it but because Adam isn't Adam, Adam isn't an angel but you know mm-hmm. the, God never said the Bible never said God created Adam and Adam never had a halo but you put all that together it's a strong image back from a short break you asked me in the break why do I do this do I do do podcasts? Uh, <laughs> Why do you do this? Yeah, what, you're in my house. Flat. I do this because the more I do this, the more I learn from each of the get everyone I have on. I've got a word document at home with all words of wisdom from every individual I've had on this show. Right, one, one of them. You you signal the punchline with your eyebrows. Who who is that from? That's from you. A subtle punchline indicator. Yes. Yeah. With the eyebrows. 
It's funny watching you watch a real pro and they've got little twerks, little quirks. Twerks as well. <laughs> you shake your bum on a punchline. But, you know, but it's just, it's just so that the rhythm, they can feel where it's coming. And it's it's not a yeah, not a rim shot, but it is a little rhythm indicator, just almost a little highlight to pen under the word where it's funny. You might go, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't need that. You don't need it, but it's a little enhancement, isn't it? As long as it doesn't look like you're trying too hard to let know where the punchline is, because otherwise they wouldn't know. That's when it looks all Okay, now here's the thing, then. Here's the thing. So we know you're delivering the, 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 the punchline or, or word. Do you, like, you don't stare at them. Do you stare at them? Well, that's a good question. I gain eye contact throughout my gig, but I'm ultimately looking just below the spotlight so you don't get blinded, so it creates illusion looking at everybody. Mm. Right, mm. that's that's the uh, technique that I think most people will apply. On a punchline, I mean, if I stare at one person in the face on a punchline, it puts them under quite a lot of pressure. So I think I'm looking in a general area on a punchline. That's a good question. I've never been asked that one either. So the great thing about what you do is you, it's the detail. Every little bit of detail. It, 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 Builds a much bigger mental image, and it and there could be just a small detail that makes the whole thing just come alive. Yeah, that little that extra little bit, isn't it? The, the little you. that you, that you give in, in in your in your jokes. I do, I I do think every word is vital, and mm. I think that you can choose one word over another, and it can make a big difference. Mm -hmm. And some people don't bother, mm. and I think that joke was lazy because you didn't achieve what you were trying to achieve. Coming from a close-up magic background, if you, a guy called Ben Hart, who came third in Britain for talent, I watched it last mm. night, it's an unbelievable magician, should have won it really, I think, but he um, said in the interview, before the thing, he said, if magic, if you make one mistake in magic, there's no magic, but with comedy, you can make a mistake and it's still comedy, because the joke can be not as fun as it could be, but it still exists as a joke. Mm. They laugh, just not as much as they would have done if you had set it up better. But with magic, you know, you drop the coin in the wrong hand, there's no coin vanish, is there? Mm -hmm. If you see any move, it, it changes. So I would say that magic is great training for stand-up because it teaches you that every single detail has to be right. It's a discipline, isn't it? It's, it's a, a great discipline. Mm -hmm. A lot of magicians became comedians. Steve Martin. Pretty Woody Allen did card tricks as well as a hobby. As we're saying about with the eyes, I find that, you know, sometimes, like, I, I find that when an eye deliver a line I look straight well I'm delivering the setup as you say just below the eye line the, you know just above the, 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 the horizon if you like but on the punchline the, the setup yeah and then with the, the punchline I sometimes kind of look down allow it just to kind of boom oh you're not looking at anyone no no oh, right. I just because it, it sometimes just like there's there, I just you know like it there it's just just a side I can't even think where I'm looking because I find for me I find it sometimes because I don't want to for you know, sometimes you some it depends on the room, of course. You know what, how they are. You sometimes you have to be steering this thing fully and showing them that you're steering this. But when it's thing. going perfectly well, you yeah. don't look at them on punch time. Yeah, just you're un slightly under underselling it on purpose. Under just yeah, underselling. Yeah, I think I look at I think I look at an audience member, hmm. not front row though. Because you look at the front row, you you alienate the back of the room, don't you? Yeah. Well, so many comedians looking down at the front row for their whole gig. Hmm. The comedy store, you get some doing open spot the comedy store, and they look at the front row because they used to play smaller rooms. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, you just missed out 300 of the 400 people. Mm. In a small room, you could at the front row because the back row is not that far behind it. But if you, you know, you've got to look over the audience in a big room. Mm. 
so that the people at the back feel like you're looking at them. But I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm kind of you. You kind of stumped me there. But I think I might look at the over the heads when I do the setup, and maybe someone face three or four rows back on the punchline. I love it when I get eye contact with someone and they can feel it's with them. Like, oh, this is our moment. Hmm. And and I, you know, sometimes they might nod at you or hmm. just li little smile to hmm. say, yes, you're looking at me, aren't you? And I love that because you you're talking to three hundred people, but you're having a moment with one. Hmm. It's quite a charming little moment. Do you riff into your organic? So do you just do a, just do a set? You just generally, just like this is the set I'm going to do because you're. I don't have a running order to my set. No, it just it no. just comes up. It just. I, like, I pull it out like a DJ with a box of records. Great. But what I do do is it, I wouldn't do a one line about anything. I I would do all my stuff about parenthood clumped together, so it feels like I'm talking about my kids, and then this, and then that, and then that, and the other thing I thought was this. But what you're actually doing is doing five jokes in a row on the same subject. But I would never do a kid joke, a book joke, a house joke, a hot dog joke because then it's just a stream of like Jimmy Carr mm. I would never do that because it doesn't suit my style I'm creating the illusion of a conversation mm. and that's why I can put jokes together to create the illusion it's me talking about my kids because I don't want them to think of them as jokes like a thought just one thought provokes another thought not necessarily thoughts on the, in the moment but a bloke talking to you okay with, with comedy right what's your five or ten if you have ten we could see if we can make it to ten ten uh, rules that you should do if you want to be the best comedian you can be. Oh, here we go. Have your eyes open all day long for what's around you to be absorbed and thought about. Don't be scared to try out new material. Make sure every joke you think of has to go through a filter of is that original enough to be considered a, a new joke and does it fit my persona? Because too many people do jokes that don't fit their personas. I look at a persona as someone standing in the dark holding a torch and they're waving the torch around and every second of their raving in a different position you build up an image of what body part they've just flashed so although you never see a whole body in the image of they're flashing around the torch you've eventually seen all of them so you build up a picture in your mind of what their silhouette is mm. so every single joke is a flash of the torch against the body go that's what they think about that that's what they like that so you can think Woody Allen's neurotic intellectual doesn't do well with women mm. these things are gradually building up to you he doesn't say those, any of those things and he certainly doesn't do all three of them in one joke I mean he might do that would be amazing but often they're one at a time mm. what's great is you can do all the things about you in one joke that is amazing but mm. my point is all you're doing throughout your set is building up more and more of an idea of who you are and you, a good comedian can get that across in one minute then they've totally bought into you, haven't they? Yeah, Emo Phillips opening line when I saw him on TV went, ah, it's great to be indoors. <laughs> and that sets two things up. One, that he spends his time outside because he's not really a functioning member of society. And secondly, he's going to twist your expectation by taking on my one way and going the other way. Mm. Great to be in London, I think he's going to say, right? Yeah. So we now know he's going to offer us. So we are aware to keep on the ball because he's going to twig trigger us. There's no joke if you're not listening to that properly. Hmm. You have to guess he's going to say London. Hmm. For him for, for that, him to be able to pull the rug up under your feet, you have to step on the rug first. Hmm. And when you step on the rug, he pulls it away. And he said to you, I'm a man who spends most of his time wandering the streets. And I'm also a man who's going to trick you because you think I'm going to say something I'm not. And that's been achieved in, in 10 seconds. Wow. Five seconds. Just one line. And I did five. It's great to be in five words. Indoors, yeah. And look what he's achieved. Round five, yeah. Give your life to it in the sense that 
when you're new, you should be on the phone or emailing people asking for work. You should be putting it first. I remember having a philosophy that I did every single gig I was offered. So if I was going out one night and I got a phone call at six saying, can you do a gig? I'd cancel what I was doing. Why would I not gig when I could be gigging? That's my ethic was yeah. that. Don't be in competition with your peers because everyone gets on at different speeds. You could get very bitter early on if you're pissed off that somebody else is doing well. Simon Munnery, there's a phrase, you know, it's not a race, it's a, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Yeah. And Simon Munnery said it's not a, it's not a race, it's a dance. Yeah. Isn't that lovely? It's, it's a dance. Lovely. So I came up with a, a heckle put down based on Simon Munnery's analogy. And I asked his permission to do it because it was ultimately his line that he hadn't said on stage. And he said, yeah, you can do it because you made it into a joke. And what it was is if someone's persistently heckling me, I look at them and go, hey, listen, this isn't a race, it's a dance that I'm winning. Yeah. And, and I've only done it twice. Yeah. But the, the thing is, it arguably could be changed so it's not a fight, it's yeah. a dance that I'm winning. Because a fight has a knockout and that's what a punchline is and it's beating somebody. Whereas a race is a finish line and a, a, a battle of wits doesn't really have a finish line until someone's given up, which is a knockout. But somehow I like using the original one, which was mm. a race. And also fight is quite an obvious analogy because of battle of wits and we're fighting with words. Mm. So somehow a race to get to the end. You know, I mean, the finish line is when one of you gives up, but that's not a finish, what finish line is. The finish line is an ending that you reach. But anyway, partly out of respect to the original line and partly out of the fact that it's a cliche to talk about fights and punchlines and battle of wits, I kept it as, as that. But, um, but going back to the original thing, what's beautiful about that is everyone says, not a spin, it's a marathon. Yeah, you are in it for the long haul, but there's no finish line. Mm. You know, I don't like the phrase made it. Oh, he's made it. What would, what would you do if you made it? I hope you make it. People come up to you after go, I hope you make it. And I think, I make a living doing what I love. I've made it. Yeah. I make a living doing what I love. Yeah. The phrase made it, someone said it the other day about someone, she said, well, you know, she's, since she's made it, she's been a bit arrogant. I thought, what does made it mean? Chris Rock earns 20 million a year. Jerry Seinfeld earns 60 million a year. Does that mean Chris Rock hasn't made it? Uh, yeah, that's right. Who, who, who decides what made it is? Yeah. So it is a dance. I bet they'll wake up in the morning and think, oh, I've made it. Do they? I don't no. know. They probably do, do they? Well, also, think? when you do become successful, you've also got to sustain it. So now you have the, the, the paradox of success is the higher you go up, the further you can fall. So they've got to keep sustaining it. So, like, oh God, I've made it now. Now I've got to play, keep it there. Yeah, that's it. So, we're at six. You said five will do. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, fine. We'll start at six. Five or six things that should be deleted from comedy. People being allowed to talk in the audience is mm. so selfish. For the people around you, it's not fair. You know, people sometimes say, I paid my money. But you know, if you go to a restaurant, you buy your food, it doesn't give you the right to throw it at everyone else in the restaurant. Mm. The selfishness of, you know, I remember Battersea Jonglers, I really was hard on this woman heckling all right, a lot. And afterwards I went over to her and I said, so I was a bit hard on you. And this woman leaving on her way past went, don't apologize, she ruined my night. Yeah, don't apologize, she ruined my night. Yeah. See, I don't mind being heckled because it creates something live and exciting and it gives you a chance to be spontaneous gladiatorial but the thing is if someone's persistently heckling the audience can feel like they didn't get to hear the material they paid to hear but I think talking is ruder than heckling personally yeah some people listening to this will go how can that be yeah. because heckling is engaging yeah. but talking is just it's just noise it can throw your timing you know just this murmur in the bloody room totally it's, it's so oh. distracting it's like it's just like a drill in the, in the people's heads in the, after a while isn't it mm. so that's one well I don't mind being heckled so I hate talking, 
pet peeves of comics that comics do oh yeah the, the, yeah the, okay how about the pet peeves that the comics do um, fine tell overrunning right if you've got to close a gig and the person in the middle has done half an hour instead of 20 minutes it's incredibly selfish behaviour because there's 10 minutes less energy left in the room for you you get home later you might be in a hurry to go away audiences can only actually have high energy for a certain amount of time mm. and if everyone overruns then you get the flag of it at the end and the uh Comedian peeve is, I don't like it, when, I mentioned this earlier, when comedians will tell a story and at the end of it, tell another story about the time they told that story before. Because mm. it's just reminding the audience it's been done before and they're not thinking that, they're just enjoying the relationship with you. And it's a bit like when a boom mic appears in a film. You know it's acting, but suddenly, no, it's ruined now. Mm. I now know, I remember seeing a boom mic appear and thinking, well, I can't believe this anymore. Well, of course it's acting, it's a film. So that kind of magic, that magic kind of goes. Or another thing when someone's improvising and they go, anyway, back to the script or, anyway, oh, so where was I again? And then they go, oh yeah, and they carry on exactly where they left off and you go, well, if you're gonna go back to something, you have gotta make it organic because if you make it too clunky, they'll go, oh yeah, that was improvised, but this is now a script. It's like a record being played suddenly. And also, if you go back to something that you've aborted because of being heckled, it's often best to forget it existed rather than go back to it, isn't it? And if you go back to it, yeah, if at the beginning of something it's fun, but if at the end of something, they, they, they don't know there was an ending. You know, if you're telling a story and something happened, you know, unless you go, this old lady went to a shop with this very expensive thing and she said, what's it worth? And the bloke said, then you get heckled and you move away. Someone goes, what, what happened to the woman in the shop? You don't want that to happen. But you've got to make a very quick decision of whether it's worth going back to or not. But if you do go back, don't go. Anyway, um, roll your eyes up to the sky and then go hmm. and then the woman said you know it you, yeah. you, must, you know, it must be seamless okay, it's ruined the illusion it ruins the illusion mm-hmm. yeah so, yeah. so that's three uh, Irish comedians who dyed their hair <laughs> who's that then <laughs> Ed Byrne Ed Byrne uh, it was funny Larry Dean said to me I can't go a day without an Ed Byrne story I told two this morning at my friend's house mm. to his wife so I, I mentioned Ed Byrne twice by 10 in the morning he was one of my peers, known for 25 years, mm. so I've got a lot of stories with him. And also, because he's successful, his stories are quite interesting as well. Mm. But yeah, so what, how did we wrap Ed just now? Uh, so that's... Uh, oh, you did. You, I didn't Larry, if you're listening, <laughs> wasn't me. Is there a fifth? Like, peeve? Yeah, peeve. Uh, What's a peeve? We've got overrunning, talking, stories on stories you've already done. Referring to a bit you've just done. Yeah. Going back to a bit in a very, like, back to the script kind of way. Stories where... Funny things happened or someone else said something funny and you're not really the person being creative, you're just reporting other people being creative. Mm. I've got one in 25 years and that's because I had an incredibly good heckle for a 14 year old kid at a gig full of adults and I credit him as the joint best line anyone ever said from an audience. Mm. And he wasn't even a heckle, he he answered the question. And I then told the story where the other funniest thing anyone ever said and it got such a roar that I thought well, actually I could do that again. But I added bits and it's now got about six punchlines on the way to the big payoff. But a little part of me inside goes, I've just tricked you here because you're howling at how funny someone else is. And it wasn't me. But then again, it's a story about an audience member outwitting me. He was 14 years old. He was black in a room of white people. So it kind of, it's quite nice that I'm having shown the humility to admit that I lost. There's some charm in that, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm still making someone else, uh, t- talking about someone else being funny. I do think that when it's just, and my mum said this, you go, well, 
to your dad. Mm. So my mum out with my dad, I was like, you're not showing humility. You're just reporting someone else being funny. Reported speech. I don't like reported speech. So that's five, isn't it? I think so. Okay, we've done, we've done five each. You've had quite a bit of TV, Adam, haven't you? In the past. Uh, did Were you on Jam? No. What, the Chris Morris thing? No, well, yeah, because w- what were you on? There was one when you uh, were a, uh, a, in an asylum. That was called Asylum. Oh, oh, there you go. Oh, that's it. That's 96, it. that was. Yeah, right. That was an amazing cast. I've seen it. Have you seen it? I've seen it, yeah. Norman Lovett, Simon Pegg, Jessica Hine, Julian Barrett, Edgar Wright directed it. That's where Edgar Wright... Simon Pegg and Jessica Hine met each other. Right. That's what that started. Shaun of the Dead and yeah. Hot Fuzz yeah. and Space. Space, I love Space. Yeah. And what's your favourite bit of uh, TV you've had? Well, I actually did a hidden camera kids show for CBeebies, where I go to a school dressed as a policeman, a fireman, an ambulance driver, or paramedic, and tell the kids complete lies about new laws coming in, mm-hmm. and they'd sit there going, "Oh my God, this is really weird," but I'm authority in the classroom. And then he'll break it to me as a hidden camera show and they'd all go, so you're a liar? And i go, yeah. Are we going to be on television then? Yeah. And the whole class would go, yeah! <laughs> and then one kid went, Meryl, that, that means you're going to be shown doing that. She's like, mm, banged her head on her head. Like, oh, just <laughs> the shame of being there. Yeah, so sweet. What? So and sweet. How, how are all those kids? How old are those kids? Right, 10. That's funny. In that age, they go, oh, you know. Like 2001. That. I was thinking Meryl now would be, what, 20... 829 yeah. but when she put her head on her hands look girl with thick rim glasses really that like, cute little nerdy looking girl and she just went hello like that god done national television is shame and you know she wasn't shamed she was just i think we t- told her that you have to wear a headband with your mobile phone on it you're not allowed to have it in your hand yeah. you can dial 999 with your tongue mm. you know just improvise stuff like that and uh, but we got meryl up and we put the headband on her and she, you know she didn't do anything stupid she was just used to make something stupid happen hmm. it wasn't like i made her a fool <laughs> poor Mel just begged her head like, oh no the shame <laughs> national television poor thing <laughs> poor thing but yeah that was great fun and I, I probably did some of my best improvisation just making up rules to these kids which is very easy making up laws and things but it's funny that i've done all these stand-up shows you know, i've probably done 50 stand-up shows in my time hmm. And I still think the most entertaining thing I've ever done was for kids' television, even for an adult to watch it, mm. because it was in a classroom, it was in... Because stand-up's not very visual. You create visual images in people's mind, but as a, on a screen, it's a person talking, you know. Mm-hmm. I watched Britain Got Talent last night, as I mentioned, and one minute there's 20 school kids dressed up on stage, the next minute it's just one bloke standing there telling stories. Yeah. It's not very visual, is it? Mm-hmm. You've done stand-up for about 25 years, right? Yeah. 25 years. You must have seen some seen things. Yeah, there was a club called the Tunnel. Is it the Tunnel? I club? the Tunnel's before my time. I did up the is creek. It, my sixth right? that was a horrendous was up the creek. Okay, which was when they had just crossed over from the tunnel, so it was very rowdy, very rowdy. I heard a story once where the acts had booed everyone off, and Malcolm Hardy comparing it went, well, there's no more show now, good night. So they booed everyone off. Mm. <laughs> it's amazing. A two-hour show became a 45-minute show because everyone got booed off. Wow. Yeah, but Tunnel Clubs, no, the Tunnel Club apparently had blood on the stage mm. with their glasses thrown at them. What's the craziest gig you've had to you know, attended that you've like, oh, man, I've got to go on here tonight, this is ridiculous? Oh, that's a good question. I did a Christmas party in 1997 at Jonglers Camden and there were 150 in one group and the other 250 people were just various groups. So there's 400 people and they are talking and ignoring the show. And Matthew Hardy, Australian guy comparing, he ended up standing on the stage going, shut the fuck up, shut the fuck up, which is not, you know, you lost mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah, you? totally. Yeah, these people, 
their bosses had paid for comedy, but they mm. wanted free drinks and they were just ignoring the show. And I went on and I died on my ass. I think they lit me at 12 minutes, they lit me at my 20 minutes. Lee Mack was on, who's, who'd been going just a bit less than me, and he came off and went, God, that was hard. But he was opening it, that was before they got really talky, but still, it was that was really hard. Just so you know, that was hard. Mm -hmm. I, I went on and died. And then I remember getting one guy heckling me and me taking him on. And he looked at me, put his arms up, and said, come on, let's do it, like kind of like a fight almost. Mm -hmm. He had 150 people in his group. So I wasn't just beating him and had the audience trying to win them over. Mm -hmm. He had 150 people on his side. It was horrible. So that was horrible. Anyway, then Mike Wilmot went on, who'd been going probably at that point, 12 years as opposed to my three. He got them immediately and stormed it. How? Well, in the dressing room afterwards, someone said to him, how did you do that? And he said, well, when an audience is that rebellious, I walk on with a kind of can't be arsed walk. So they can't rebel against me because I'm not authority. I'm one of them. It was such a subtle thing. And he said it so casually. He didn't say it arrogantly. It was just like, look, this is what I do. And it was a real light bulb moment for me because I thought, actually, if their objective is to ruin everything and you're trying to make them listen, then you're the thing to rebel against. You're the strict teacher that they're going to say, you're not going to be strict with me because I don't care. And therefore, if you're not a strict teacher, if the teacher turns up, sits on a desk and skins up a joint, you're not going to feel that good throwing a paper ball at him, are you? Because he's not authority. You wouldn't throw a paper ball at a teacher skinning up. You'd go, oh my God, he's worse than us. Yeah, he's not the target. He's, he's not, not the, the target. target anymore, yeah. So I, the other day, did a gig and it was a lovely little marquee and such Stratford upon Avon and they were all kind of locals. They didn't all know each other, but there was a vibe of a little bit of a community. The compa went on and Chris Gilbert, very good, very skillful, and he couldn't really finish a joke. They were trying to bring their own jokes. He'd ask someone their name, they'd give a false name. They were mucking about and it was almost like, okay, they're just kind of being dicks. Mm. So he dealt with that in his way and he got them on board and it was fine. But he acknowledged that they had bought their own jokes. And I'm watching at the side going, this is not really a gig, it's just a load of people trying to be funny in the room. Chris got them, don't get me wrong, Chris got them. But So I'm not saying he did wrong and I did right, we both did right. Mm -hmm. But he eventually got them on side and passed the baton to me. And I walked on and I didn't try to do material straight away because then that gives more of them to try and go, no, we want to do this. So I went on playing with them rather than performing to them. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they can't rebel against me. And that's a variation of what Wilmot did 22 years ago mm -hmm. because they can't rebel against me mm -hmm. if I'm rebelling with them. Mm -hmm. I'm one of them. Yeah, that's interesting. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. it, it, the, the outcome of his one was he would have been ignored, booed off stage, or just, just done a gig to just noise. Yeah. But the outcome is still the same in the sense that I managed to make that audience listen to my material because I started by being one of them. I think my opening line was, and I've never said this before, I said, um, I'm just gonna say I don't really mind being heckled, but I'm pretty sure that's gonna happen anyway. As in, even if I didn't invite it, it was gonna happen. So they laughed. So I've now kind of said, I know you wanna heckle me, don't you? And I'm not bothered by that and you can, and you were going to anyway. So there's the two things going on there. By saying I've, I'm, don't mind being heckled is showing extreme confidence. Mm -hmm. You're, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But also by saying I got a feeling you were going to anyway, it's also showing them the respect that I know you don't need to be told because you are cheeky little buggers. Mm. So I'm kind of going, I like you. I know you're cheeky. You do what you want, don't you? And I've also said, but I can handle it. But there's a little nod to them at the same time. Mm -hmm. I don't mind being heckled. I've said to a rowdy late show, 
and they've gone fuck he's confident and then they don't heckle but that sentence is far more devious because it's actually saying to them but you little cheeky monkeys you you don't need my permission to heckle do you because you're gonna aren't you and that's the last thing they hear in that sentence which is respect to them but it's not respect to them doffing my cap it's still authoritative mm-hmm. and there's a lot going on in that sentence and it came to me as I went on stage mm-hmm. and it kind of summed, sums it all up what's what's happened and what's going to happen mm-hmm. and how I'll deal with it and then gradually into my gig I, I did material and it was a normal gig mm-hmm. but that just the subtlety because a newer comic will just walk on and just do their set yeah. and for the first few minutes the audience might heckle mm-hmm. uh, or stare thinking also there's an ego uh, dent, not dent. There's a gear shift when they have to stop mucking about, and almost you're going, Stop having fun, listen to me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a whole environment mm-hmm. for common, isn't it? Stop enjoying yourself because I've got funny stuff to tell you, and you're going to listen to it. Oh, so now we stop having fun to mm-hmm. listen to you. Well, yeah. there's a schism there, isn't there? Yeah. Suddenly they're just watching a person mm-hmm. talking who, who's interfering with their interrupting their enjoyment. The more you try to force something, the yeah. more people push against it. Yeah, so, it's human nature, isn't it? Yes. So, what, what Wilmot did that night was. Mm absolutely multiple just by walking on and slightly wobbling his head and walking slowly they went oh he's not authority so we can't throw a paper at him before he got to the mic he'd already done a better gig than Lee and me wow yeah is that incredible just relax just walking on yeah but not just relax as in I'm not scared of you I'm one of you it's great isn't it when you first began comedy you had you had people you looked up to peers but your work ethic uh, if you were to consider yourself anything could be creature beast uh, or, or or something you've made up like what what would you see yourself as I mean like you could see yourself as a Sean Mio for example sees himself as a gunslinger sees ever, like sees comics as uh, as like you know we walk, walk you know we travel around gigging you know taking your jokes with you you're like that's it start his style, isn't it that's it but yourself what would you see yourself as a puppy a puppy, yeah? Mm. Playful puppy. Mm. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Great. I got a review in Edinburgh that said, his tiggerish energy never grates. His, no, it was his, yeah, his zany TV presenter persona never grates, and he has tiggerish energy. And I thought doing an Edinburgh show called Tigger with Attitude. That's great. You like that's it? Gr- I like that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, but that tigger, tigger thing totally fits you, for sure. Yeah, that's great. So a, a puppy, but with a tigger personality. Yeah, let's say a tigger. Tigger. Nice. There's a good bit of advice. I remember doing a gig at uni and there were about 12 people in I'd been going like 10 years and the other comics on the bill had been going 6 months to 2 years mm-hmm. so they were all getting paid nothing or very little and I was the headliner and there were 12 to 15 people in and they were going down like flies and I had so much more experience that I knew what to do and I did it I even moved them forward because mm-hmm. the combi hadn't done that I went off mic I said, this can happen, we can make this work, we can make this work, puts it in their mind that it's a joint effort, which it is. You're gonna to have to want this to work with me without me begging you. I'm just saying, we can make this work. If I said I can make this work, that's an arrogant claim, isn't it? Yep. We can make this work better, isn't it? Community, make yes. community, crown. And, and I had a good gig. And it, it, I didn't have a great gig, but it went from two out of 10 to seven out of 10 mm. in two minutes. And I looked at one of the comedians and she'd said to me, I'm gonna stay and watch you. She said, I've got, I should go, but I'm gonna stay and watch you. And I thought, good for you. You've, you wanna see how someone with 10 years experience plays this room. But she watched me with a really pissed off face the whole oh. way through. And I thought, so you wanna learn, yeah. but actually 
you don't like the fact I'm doing well. Mm. So actually, she doesn't want to learn. What she wanted to do was watch me to see if I did any better, because if I failed as well, she could go home happy that we both failed and her ego is now intact. Yeah. So she didn't stay and watch me to learn. Yeah. She stayed and watched me to hope I didn't do well. You might go, you're reading into this a bit much. I don't think I am. Was true. She was scowling at me for my whole set. Mike Wilmot, mm. when he stormed it after me, there was, a, there was a bit of humiliation there because he showed the audience that they weren't a bad audience, that they just needed to be turned into a good audience, yeah. right? And I stood at the side going, oh God, this has really made me look bad. But once I got over that moment, yeah. I watched in awe and was fascinated by what he was doing. And although I didn't ask him that question in the dressing room, I was very eager to learn when he answered it. I didn't say, what did you do? I just thought that was masterful. Yeah. I didn't think to ask what he did. Mm -hmm. I just knew it could be done. But the subtlety, just to walk into the mic. I mean, I watched somebody at a, a gig the other day. It was a benefit gig. And the, someone had gone on and spoke about the charity. And then the combo went on. And they shouted into the microphone, having that other guy spoke gently, and swore in the first sentence. Mm. And I thought, they're talking about dead children. Mm. Well, there has to be a moment to say, by the way, first of all, thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, that was very moving. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, we are here to have a good time. We're going to celebrate the, the good things in life and raise some money for charity. Mm -hmm. So let's have a round of applause for the beginning of the show. Like that. But shouting, swearing in the first second, and the audience turned right off. Mm -hmm. That you could see them detach. You could almost see them detach themselves from the stage. Yeah. You know, these little details and some will go, oh, I had to follow someone talking about, you know, dead, dead people. It was impossible. Yeah. It was harder, mm. but nothing's impossible. I, I drive away from a tough corporate sometimes and that was really tough. That was so unplayable. But if I drive away from one where I said that opening line that absolutely brought everything together in one moment, mm. I go, I nailed it. Well, when you don't nail it, yeah. it's because you failed to nail it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Course. But you know, we we all want to protect our ego, so we go, that was unplayable. Yeah. There kind of is no, actually by definition, there's no such thing as an unplayable gig. Mm. Something can be done yeah. to make those people listen. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Even if it's whispering, so they can think, God, we're so loud we can't hear him. Mm. Even if it's miming on the microphone. Miming, so they go, I can't even hear that bloke I'm ignoring. Mm. I'll go quieter. I'll go quieter, because I can't even hear the noise in the background. You, that that's a genuine technique, by the way. Mike Wilmot, he just walked up there with just confidence and just, just was no, like, no, it wasn't confidence. It was lack of regard for the situation. He he walked to the microphone like he couldn't be asked, and they went, "Well, we can't rebel against him because he's a rebel himself." There's an M&M line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you going to do against a man who strangles himself? You're having a fight with someone who's strangling himself. He's yeah. suicidal man. Can't fight a suicidal man. He's doing it for you. It's true. Well, like surf it, right? So yeah, my magic mentor was a guy called Alan Allen, God rest his soul, and he told me a story where there was a magician on the Johnny Carson show who had to follow the Beatles, live television, and let's say his name was Adam Bloom, okay? So he goes, um, so they're going, ah, Wingo, ah, Portsmouth, John. And then he goes, um, hello, my name's Adam Bloom. Ah, my name's Adam Bloom. My name's Adam Bloom. Because if he starts doing material, they're not going to hear it. Mm. So he said his name again. What he did was he said his name quieter and quieter each time until he was miming. And gradually, the screaming stopped when they realised they couldn't hear the person that they were talking over. Yeah. And then he did his set and he stormed it. 
and he did the thing that was needed. Wow. And everyone else said, they weren't this, I couldn't play it, I walked off. I knew Paul Daniels, the magician, a little bit, not, not well, but I knew him. I saw Bob Monkhouse's last ever performance and he did a Q&A and he told a story about Paul Daniels as a young magician. And it was an amazing story. So I, when I met Paul Daniels, I said, is this true? And he said, yes. And this is what happened. He did a gig in the theatre in a small town where everyone knew each other, packed little theatre. And someone went on just before him and made an announcement that Frank, the treasurer for the theatre, had died. And people getting their tissues out and crying. Mm. You can see people weeping from the wings. Got girl on the show now, young magician, Paul Daniels. The most stupid thing you could do to a performer, make the announcement at the end, mm. or don't make it. Mm. He went on stage and said, ladies and gentlemen, I didn't know Frank, but I can tell from everyone's reactions that he was a very loved man. And I'll be honest with you, I don't want to be up here any more than you want me to be up here. Mm. But I've got to do a job. I'm here to entertain you. So Frank, he looks up at the sky. If you're watching, this one's for you. And they had to like it. Yeah, yeah, of course. If they either ignored it or didn't enjoy it, they were disrespecting Frank. He performed mm. for Frank. Mm. Clever. It's so clever. Yeah. Mm. It's so, so clever. Yeah. It's amazingly clever. I managed to, to steal that technique uh, once. There was someone in the audience who, he brought up, I think he was a heckler, who then brought up the death of a relative which is such bad taste. You're losing the battle, so you're gonna throw death in it to make the audience atmosphere shit and make the comedian feel guilty. Mm. So I said, I'm sorry to hear about your brother, but if he's up there, this gig's for him. Mm. It's exactly the same thing Paul Daniels did, but in a moment, because obviously Frank's far more important than this. They don't actually care about his brother, but for the moment he's brought his brother up, Mm. he's changed the atmosphere in the room. So what I've done is deflected his negative energy and going, okay, I dedicate my gig to your brother. He can't go, boo, get off. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. His hands are tied. Hands are tied. Yeah, his hands are tied. But it's basically, he's done a smash and I've returned it and played it innocent. Brilliant. Played innocent. But you know, my my Achilles heel is when someone says, get on with it. So if I'm dealing with the audience and they go who's been obstinate and they go just get on with it so they're now taking a higher status over you mm-hmm. you carry on with your job so now if I know going to material I'm doing it subserviently yeah. to him mm-hmm. so everything I do after that is on his instruction mm-hmm. so I used to say well, I'm, I'm going to get on with it I'm choosing to get on with it by talking to you this is me getting on with it or I go I'm not going to carry on because you told me to these are not good answers mm-hmm. this is my pride going mm-hmm. don't tell me what to do mm-hmm. but I'm not winning because mm-hmm. ultimately what's happened there is He's made trying to make me look bad, yeah. and I'm refusing to let make me bad, and I'm making myself look bad in the process because I can't carry on with it. I've created a, a, a no-win situation. Mm. So I was doing an award ceremony a couple of years ago. I got caught up, you know, they're waiting for the next award. There was someone on their table might be nominated for it, and I got involved in this squabble with this bloke, mm. and someone else went, get on with it. And I went, you're absolutely right. Mm. Good point. I agree. Thank you for reminding me that this conversation is going nowhere. Mm. I've taken the instruction, but I've neutralised it by kind of going, good point, mm. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. But I suppose that's slightly different because it wasn't the heckler who said get on with it. Mm-hmm. It was somebody else. Mm-hmm. Whereas if the heckler says get on with it, well, I haven't completely solved the problem because me saying that's a good point to someone else is a third party saying this is to go nowhere, mate, you should move on. Mm-hmm. Whereas if the guy in front of me said get on with it, maybe, maybe next time, good good point, good idea. Oh, I'll, I'll do one. First sensible thing you've said and then get on with it. So then you put, you, you've kind of slammed them and carried on. Mm. If someone heckling you says get on with it and you just get on with it, 
you kind of are following instructions and there's a power shift there. That's right, that's right. That's good. It's, but yeah, that's good because then you're, you're using them as a, as a springboard then rather than them controlling what you're doing. Yes, but yes. the time I did it in the, in the corporate, I can't be too proud of that because it was the third party saying it. Uh, but if there's a time as a younger comic, I'd have gone, don't tell me what to do. I ain't getting on with it. I'm choosing to talk to him. Bottom line is a corporate is a different environment as well. They have hired you to do a job. A comic club, they've paid money to be in your company. In a corporate, you are working for them. You know, corporate, they can say what you want to wear. They can tell you what to wear. They can tell you what not to say. I don't any swearing, okay? I can't then swear and then expect to get paid the full amount because they've said to me, we're booking you these conditions. I tell you what I don't like is when you're about to go on stage, they go, oh, by the way, can you not swear? I go, maybe you should have discussed it when we booked me. Mm. I've got a corporate kind of set now. I've got an edit where I go, this is all stuff that's not gonna offend anyone. Mm. And I've also got a version of the same stuff that takes the swear words out. So I'll say buggered instead of fucked, mm-hmm. as in a broken. Mm-hmm. And I'll say crap instead of shit. Mm-hmm. I can't remember, there's another word, I, I maybe would just take it out. but. There is a kind of almost an instant censorship mm. I've got. But before I had that mm. version, they could completely derail me by saying that just before I walk on stage. Yeah, totally. Do you like doing corporates? I used to hate them, now I like them. But there's obviously occasionally there's one that really is horrible. Mm. I've had at least three people try not to pay me because it's gone so badly. Wow. Yeah. Going to your 26th year of comedy? Yeah, it's December. What's the next plan, Adam? I don't know. I could do a, a vehicle now. I've it's a while since I've had a, an interesting project you know it's a long time since I've had an interesting project because Radio 4 ended 2005 last television show I did was 2007 that's a long time since I've done something significant for myself I have had a few writing jobs for other people that have been big I did a mm. nine day job for somebody a few years ago mm. I mean that's quite a significant amount of work nine eight hour days mm. but again that, that's their career not mine is it so maybe I could do writing a book Sitcom, I've tried writing sitcoms, it's hard. Mm. Character development, relationships, plot. The plot's happening while the characters are also being explained to you. You're not talking about the torch and the persona. Mm-hmm. You've got to do that for every single person. Mm. Each one's got a different persona and a relationship with each other. Mm. Hard. Mm. I think because with stand-up, I'm only playing one person, it's me, and it's how I've evolved or shed my skin, whichever way you want to look at it. I know me. You know, Every time I write a joke, it goes through the process of this original, and is it something I would say? And is it funny? But the thing is, sitcom, I mean, I'd love to write a sitcom that I'm in and then the sitcom become popular, make a lot of money from the sitcom and then go on tour and make a lot of money touring. Mm. That seems like a nice way of making a living. Mm. And, you know, not many people, but Ricky Gervais has been the ultimate example of that, hasn't it? The ultimate Absolutely. example. Mm. In fact, he'd only done, I think he'd done 15 gigs when he went to the office. I think it was his 17th gig. I gig with him his first gig after the office came out. It was a little pub packed to see him. And he said, that's my 17th gig. But you know, the office was a masterpiece and I, stuff I've written, I've looked back over it and I've gone, it's not good. Writing a book seems a a good idea because I've written three radio series, so I can sit down and write. I can sit down at a laptop and churn out words. What about a book on comedy? Not enough people would buy it. Why? Well, there aren't enough comedians. (laughs) Yeah, but there's not enough people that want to be comedians, aren't there? That's a very good question. If I wrote a book on how to do stand up, mm. I think it would get good reviews within the industry. Yeah, absolutely. But what would it would it sell on Amazon? Well, oh well, I mean, it's, it's word of mouth is the most powerful thing. I mean, sure, why you can? You, I'm sure it would. I'm sure it would. You know, the, all the all the experience you've got, all the people that have worked with you. 
Yeah, it just could be a lot of work for very little return. I thought of writing a book on online dating, actually. And that's fun for you, though, isn't it? That's half, half fun for you, too, at the same time, isn't it? <laughs> you could certainly uh, yeah, write just, off a lot of dinners I'm, as tax deductions. It's true. I'm just doing some research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, so, Adam, where can we find you, then, in, the, in a flat? My website's adam-blin.com, and that's got a link to gig states. I'm gigging a lot, you know. Mm. I tell you what's interesting, this week I've got, I've got a gig, a compound gig, a corporate, a writing job, and I've got a, a corporate event, you won't believe this, they're paying me to just walk around being me. Here's the t- catch. The guests are made to believe that the host is my friend. He just wants more interesting people at his party. Wow. That's a dream corporate gig, isn't it? Well, that's it? what Windsor said last night, and I said I find it terrifying. And he went, what are you talking about? It's the least pressure you can ever be under. Mm. Maybe get too relaxed, isn't it? Say the wrong thing altogether, right? Ah. <laughs> well, I think what, what's really eccentric about it is the idea, the kind of person who's got that kind of money just to spend on one guest has probably had quite an interesting life. I, I don't know. I'm terrified he's going to listen to this. He, he, he sounds like a lovely bloke, but I... The idea of being paid to walk around a party is so foreign to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, That's strange, isn't it? What do you do? That's uh, fascinating. Uh, but you get some great stories from it, though. Be interesting from the people you meet. There could well, be a lot of people there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, mind you, they're paying me to be interesting. It makes you wonder who's going to be there. Do you know if he's listening? If you're listening to this, I I don't mean that disrespectfully. I just I can't get my mind round the concept of having a friend there who you don't know. I can't get my head around that because I have to make up a backstory. Yeah. So how do you mean? Uh, in the army, dear. Yeah. You know what do I say? I mean, the first question you ask at a party is how do you know him? And um, but if listen, hopefully if you're listening to this, it's already gone well. It's happened and everything, and, <laughs> and we can have a laugh about it. And I can recommend, I can recommend the podcast to you, and you can hear my fears. But I think that first of all, right, there's no stage. First mm. of all, mm. secondly, there's no audience. Mm. And if you meet somebody, what are we going to do? I'm not going to crack jokes one-on-one. I mean, if I'm comfortable at a party, mm. I can be the life and soul of the party and be really funny. Mm. If I'm not comfortable at a party, I'm who's that weird bloke in the corner. Yeah, you know, true. I can be a lot of things at a party. Mm-hmm. Do I drink? Yeah, I think you should. I think you're allowed. I think you're allowed, aren't you? Because I never drink at a gig ever. One or two? One yeah, or I, two. I never drink at a gig ever. Mm. This isn't a gig, is it? No. It's a party. And parties where people drink. I, I emceed Brendan Burns' wedding speeches, as he did mine. Mm. And uh, I stayed sober all day. It was getting a bit tedious, and then Ed Burns said to me, Boom, there you go, there's an Ed Burns story. Mm-hmm. He said, You've had a drink, you're not doing a gig, you're standing at a wedding talking mm. where everyone else is having a drink. It's not a gig, you're just bringing some people on to say some speeches. Mm. And I went, Oh, yeah, you're right. So, one and a half beers, mm. and was as, on as good a form as I've ever been on in my life. Mm. In all fairness, a wedding's not a proper audience because they, a lot of them know you and they're all there to have a lovely time. Mm. But I remember thinking the alcohol did not affect my speed of thought at all. Mm. If anything, it made me more comfortable and loosen up a little bit. Yeah. Um, so it made me think, God, should I have been drinking? It's a danger, isn't it? It's a I danger. Yeah, but I'm not going to do it because yeah. I, I think that if you have agent for a gig, then you might have two, then one meet you have three, and then you get pissed on stage or whatever. Where's the line? Yeah, that's it. You could go, okay, what, what you could do, I suppose, is if you have a rule, you have a drink, but just before you go on, apparently Michael McIntyre used to have a shot of straight whiskey, give him a little bit of a buzz. Yeah. But if you have it just before you go on, you're not going to be continue to drink because you're on stage without a drink mm. then what if someone offers you a drink <laughs> oh my god I think, you don't get many, offered many drinks during a gig do you no. but the thing is I speak, if you had one just before you went on I suppose you could 
that stops you having too much. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Twenty-five years in, that'd be an interesting experiment. Yeah, Not yeah. that one drink. Then, uh, or you found out you're amazing, and then you've gone. Oh, I spent twenty-five <laughs> years. I've been doing this. Twenty-five <laughs> years. Oh man, I could have been. I could have been so much better. Oh, so much God. quicker. So many people drink and they're looking like, oh, where could my life have been if I hadn't drunk? And I'm yeah. like, oh, if I had drunk. <laughs> I've only taken drugs and drunk all the time. Um, so, Adam, final words on comedy, any if you have any. To anyone thinking about doing it, it's the best job in the world. You get paid to travel the world, doing something you love, watching other people being funny, making friends who are very talented. You've just got to do it. I'm the outside of a bubble looking in. It feels like it's very hard to get through it. Really, all you're doing is walking into a space and talking into a machine and all the other fears are manufactured by you yeah. Adam thank you for coming on the show man it's great thanks for having me pleasure man did you enjoy that I hope you did that was episode 73 with excellent comedian he's been on the circuit for 20 odd years and just passionate about comedy, Adam Bloom. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know if you did. Uh, you can find him all over um, Twitter. You can find him on uh, Line everywhere. You can find him. You just type in Adam Bloom and loads of stuff will come up. As I say, he's been on TV loads. And uh, he's a lovely guy. He's a really good friend of mine and just a lovely guy to be on a bill with. He's so encouraging and motivating. That's an episode that I enjoyed recording, editing, and I'm going to listen to it back a few times because it's just so inspiring. He's a great person as well. If you're on a bill with him, he's just brilliant. He's brilliant. I hope you enjoyed it, as I say. You can find this podcast on, we're on Instagram at Winter Dominus. We're on Facebook. We've got a group. We've got a page. Like that. Share it. We're on YouTube. Subscribe. All the stuff is there. And we're also on Stitcher and Spotify now. Now, if you like this podcast and you want to donate to it, you can. Go to Patreon, type in The Comedy Defect Podcast, or you can donate as much as a coffee or a pint. Or if you want to donate something in particular, uh, you can tell me and I will buy that and I'll take a picture of it and tag you on Instagram. I mean, what kind of service is that? What other service do you get with your donations? You don't get that everywhere else. The next episode is on in June after hopefully the lockdown is eased and we're all back to some sort of normality with a very good friend of mine, comedian, podcaster, episode 74. And the guy is called Luke Anthony. He does a podcast as well called The Comedian's Outlook. He's been doing some live stuff in Angel and he's working so hard at his podcast. He's doing really well. And he's been working with President Bonjo during the lockdown doing something called The Nearly News. He's been streaming that out there. It's very funny. And go check his stuff out too. Now, I hope your lockdown has gone okay and you haven't uh, resorted to uh, hacking at your own hair or you've got your partner to try and do it uh, or you've just given up and shaved it all off because maybe the lockdown is going to be easy now and you might have to go out before it's grown back. So I'll say I hope you're being good to yourself in this difficult time and I'll, I'll leave it there because I've been breathing in acrylic resin the last, I'll say, three, four hours now. So my mind is just all over the place. So I hope you enjoyed that one with Adam Bloom. Let's say next month, end of June, is Luke Anthony for episode 74. Uh, enjoy your weekend. <laughs>